in eternity past, an infinite, pure, holy, unbounded love flowed between the persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit express such a complete and incomprehensible love toward one another. We can only express it by exclaiming, God is love. So when God created the heavens and the earth, this infinite and holy love naturally issued from his being and cascaded with uninhibited joy over the heads of his creatures. Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, were drawn into this fraternity of love, and they thus loved God with all their heart, and they loved each other with a pure and perfect love. But sin changed all that. When Adam and Eve chose to reject the will of God and to rely upon self, they shrunk. They turned inward and became small, self-centered people. And to this day, self-interest, self-promotion, self-love renders us naturally small people whose prideful souls stunt our love for others and fuel the flames of hostility toward one another. In much greater detail, we've considered these ideas in past weeks, and in a cursory manner, we've considered also the answer to it all. That answer is redemption by the sanctification of God's love. What is the epitome of that love? It is not God excusing. It is not God overlooking. It is not God turning a blind eye and a deaf ear. The love of God is epitomized according to 1 John 3 and verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That love is epitomized by Christ taking our sin and dying in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. That is the love of God. Chapter 4 and verse 10 of 1 John. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, as the satisfaction of God's wrath. Not that He responded to our love, but that God, uninitiated, unprovoked by us, laid down His life in our behalf. This is love. And it is this kind of love, this holy love that reaches down to us in all our self-centered pride and rebellion. This love that draws us out of the muck of our small and selfish ways. It is this kind of love that redeems us from our fallen condition. But God's love does not only redeem us from our sin, God puts this love in our hearts as his people, so that John can say, verse 7, remember it there, chapter 4, verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. But that brings us back this morning to the matter of selfish pride. Last week, if you were with us and we considered the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, did it not bring to your heart a level of conviction? I think if you were here and heard of our fall from a place of pristine love to a place of self-centered arrogance, if you could hear that and not be moved, I feel very sorry for you. In fact, I'd be worried for you. 
when I stand in my mind's eye at the foot of the cross, and I look into the face of Jesus Christ, and I see those eyes of love looking at me and dying for my selfish, sinful soul, you cannot stand there and walk away unchanged. You must either reject that love or be transformed by it. There is no other option. As I stand there, my self-centeredness and self-promoting pride presents itself in hideous contrast to his love. And I weep with shame. And I walk away as his child resolved to be less selfish. I chide myself, get off your small center. Crush selfish ambition. Embrace the large love of God and go after the love of others by imitating God as a dear child, living a life of love, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And I think that those who are genuinely saved look at the cross and walk away with something of that sense. We walk away changed. But we must understand that although our selfish pride is crucified on the cross with Christ, there is another sense in which that selfish pride continues to go with us. It haunts us in this earth. Here's the point. In our sin, it is very possible to think that we are loving others with divine love when in fact we have embraced a lesser form of love which naturally ferments into self-interested idolatry. And it leads us to a frustration and to guilt and to know in a sense that we are not the people of love that we ought to be. But listen, there's a world out there that would almost without exception claim that they love someone. To merely love is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a particular kind of love. And John, as we have read in 1 John, he's talking about a particular kind of love. And without that love, we remain small people. But here is is what I would like to drive at this morning. One of the great problems is that we often think that we are loving others with this divine love, and we are not. My hope is to expose this temptation to light so that we may be better equipped to love God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. Let's start first of all by distinguishing between human and divine love. First of all, divine love is completely self-sufficient. A quick theology test. Does God have any needs? Does God lack anything in himself? I think in every theology class that I've taken through Bible college and through seminary, whenever theology proper, the doctrine of God is considered, somewhere this enters into the course. Does God have needs? Does God need to be completed? Theologians have long recognized that in his very nature, God has no needs. He lacks nothing. He is wholly self-sufficient. He needs no one and no thing to make him complete. 
Now, how does that apply to our study of divine love? Proposition number one, God has no need to receive love from someone else. Proposition number two, God does not need to give love to someone else. Now, how do we explain that? That isn't anything like our love. I'm presupposing what we're going to discuss here, but that's nothing like our love. How do we filter that? How do we understand that? God does not need to give love. God does not need to receive love. Of course, the explanation is in the Trinity. In the triune nature of God, a perfect love has flowed with unimpeded beauty between the three persons of the Trinity forever. God's love is wholly sufficient within Himself. He gives and receives love within His own unique person. And so He is the only being who does not need to receive or give love. Obviously, the love of humans is very different. Are human beings self-sufficient? Do we need to receive love? Do we need to give love? Human love is obviously inherently needy. Proposition number one, we need, and this is the most obvious of all, we need to give love to someone outside of ourselves. Unlike God, our love must be expressed to an object outside of self. God did not create Adam and Eve because he needed someone to love. God loved himself with a pure, complete, and perfect love. But for God's creatures, absolute self-love that never moves beyond self is damning. It's a vice. There was a repeating line, theme line, in an old rock song that declared, Need somebody to love. Well, notwithstanding the entirely misguided intent of the song, that catches it about right for us here. We need somebody to love. We're human creatures. We have to love someone. Proposition number two. This might become a little more difficult but we need to receive love from someone outside ourselves. I say that's difficult because let me run at the front of the pack that gets nervous when we talk about love needs. We'll get to that later. But the reality of the situation is that as creatures, we need to receive love. We are created to receive love. God receives and enjoys our love, but He does not need it. We, on the other hand, must have the love of God. I think we can at least establish that very clearly and very fairly. We need God's love. In fact, think of passages of Scripture. Where would your mind run to say that there is a proper thirst for God that must be satiated with God alone? I think we could turn to the Psalter, to the book of the Psalms, And we would find over and over again this repetitive phrase that I need God. That's not wrong. That's not selfish. That is being a creature and it's seeing reality that we were made for God. We were made to relate to Him. We must have Him. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 42, which epitomizes this cry from the book of Psalms. These prayers to God. This pouring out of devotion to Him comes through a sense of need as is described here in this psalm of the sons of Korah. 
Psalm 42 and verse 1, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Is the psalmist sinning? If divine love gives of itself for the good of the beloved, what business does the psalmist have here of longing for God? Now we understand obviously that it is not sin to need love from God. I think of John chapter 4. You might turn there to John 4 and verse 13. John 4 and verse 13. Jesus capitalizes upon this need for God as he talks to the Samaritan woman by a well one day. John chapter 4 and verse 13. He says to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus capitalizes upon this need for God, and he proclaims the truth to her that you need God, and I am Messiah. I will fill you with a satisfaction that never ends. You need me. You will thirst, and you are thirsting now, spiritually, he tells this woman. Romans 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it is, again, damning not to recognize our absolute need for this love of God. When he died for us as sinners, taking our sin, not what we deserved, but to reject that truth is to reject life. We must have it. We simply must have it. But we must also receive love from others. That is how we are created. There's a proud, I think in its base, a proud statement that says, I don't need anyone's love. I need God. He loves me. And that's all I need. Now, we can almost respect that statement because there is a certain sense in which it is true but there's another sense in which it is idolatrous. There is hidden in that statement an unwillingness to admit our creaturely humanity. Hidden behind this profession is an insidious pride and a sense of self-sufficiency. We border on the idolatry of making God not holy when we say, I'm sufficient in myself. The truth of the matter is that we do need to love the love of others. It is part of being human. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, I believe, describes this. In an environment prior to sin, prior to the fall and this selfishness and smallness that overtook Adam and Eve in the garden, we read in Genesis chapter 2, after the creation of Adam, that the Lord says in verse 18, Genesis 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. For our purposes here, let me just make this comment. There wasn't going to be an animal out there that Adam would someday find that would complete him. God brought every animal to Adam that he needed to see to realize there's nothing out there. 
So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. It seems to me then that verses 19 and 20 are a commentary on verse 18 or a further explanation of it. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And Adam comes to find out that that is exactly what he needs. God realizes that need. God has created Adam with that need. And he brings to Adam Eve. This need for love is also found throughout Scripture. It's at the heart of the Old Covenant. God commanded the Israelites to show compassion for the poor and the widowed and to reverence the aged. And what is the essence of the law? What did Jesus say? You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and you will love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang the law and the prophets. What is at the heart? What is the hook on which the entire Old Covenant hangs when they are, the Israelites are to care for the aged, are to care for the poor, are to care for the widowed, are to care for people in need? It is love. Now, the Old Testament does not chide such people with being needy. It calls on those who are not as needy in comparison to help and to love. The New Testament, James 1 and verse 27 says, Pure and faultless religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now you know that the New Testament is not shy about telling people living in sin to stop living in sin. This is not a way of skirting around their real need. If these people in distress, and we're talking here about a culture and an environment when such individuals could be reduced to begging if someone didn't care for them. In that culture, in that environment, pure religion was to take care of such people. The Bible does not say, now such people you need to understand, you don't need anyone's love, you just need the love of God. There is a sense in which that's true. But there is another sense in which it is simply a matter of humanity. We are not self-sufficient. We do need the love of others. Now, we have to be careful here with the word need. But there is a sense in an external manner that we are created to receive love and it's good. Let's just put the word need in that way. I must receive love and it's good to receive love. Now, obviously God receives love, but there isn't the same need in it. Let me illustrate this for us. You've probably seen, there's some pictures that are taken in our culture that we all know and never forget, or many of us would know if we've seen them. I think of the World War II picture of a Japanese girl crying, running down a street, absolutely naked, as her city has just been bombed. Now, if Jesus were walking down that street... You can think of the terror. You see the terror on this girl's scream. Absolutely abject poverty. Not even any clothes. There she runs, this little girl, down the street. If Jesus were walking down the street at the same time in the opposite direction, what would he do? Can you conceive in your mind of Jesus taking that little girl, her face in his hands, and saying, Now, little girl, I want you to understand you're being very selfish. You're being very thoughtful of yourself to think that you need someone's care and love and comfort. 
And if you will follow me to the way of true love, I will show you how you can absolutely forget yourself and live for others. I don't know a Jesus like that. I think Jesus would do what you would do if you have any love in your heart at all. You'd take that girl into your arms and you'd love her. You'd give her comfort. And you'd say, as Jesus would say, come to me. Let me hold you as you cry. She's not sinning to need love in that moment. A man comes home from a very hard and discouraging day at work. He's beat up. He's licking his wounds. Would we chide him if he seeks solace in the embrace of his loving wife and encouragement from her? We could certainly deal, he could certainly deal with his problems in a selfish way in this setting. He could call upon his wife's support in any number of self-serving and godless ways, but we would not condemn him for sensing his need for her love. In light of Genesis 2, we would say that such a need is healthy and even glorifying to the Creator's design. Now, should her care, should her encouragement be lacking in that moment through circumstances, he must also deal with that and find in God his solace, certainly. But it's not evil in itself to receive love. God's love, let me summarize it this way, God's love is entirely self-giving. It has no need. It pours from, its being as an, it pours from His being as an infinite stream, gushing in the direction of the ultimate good of the Beloved. The fountain never needs to be pumped. It runs free. It's liberated from selfish ambition and need. We, by contrast, need to receive love. This is not inherently sinful. It's inherently human. And so let me borrow from C.S. Lewis, which I do from this point on, borrow his term, need love. We have to understand that carefully, not in the psychological terms of our day. And we'll get to that further. But he speaks of need love, and I don't know how else to put it. Jonathan Edwards called it self-love, that is a love which seeks some benefit. But that word has been so stuffed with different meaning that I don't think it's serviceable to us any longer. It was in his day. Perhaps C.S. Lewis's need love is more useful to us. And by that, we're simply talking about the love which receives from others legitimately. Now, there's a very important consideration here. Not that divine love replaces human love. I don't think that's the point. Some might argue in that direction to say that this divine love of giving, this love epitomized by Christ dying on the cross, pouring out its love for others, this love is to replace all receiving type of loves. I don't think, as I've tried to demonstrate, that that's biblical at all. Rather, the divine love, we are dealing here rather with the divine love God puts in our heart at salvation, needing to transform our receiving type of loves. That there should be at the heart of all that we are, all that we do, a love which flows from God and transforms the receiving of love that we gain from others. Now we're going to work on that point for some time. But let me caution here, there's a lurking danger. 
As I mentioned as we began, the lurking danger is to confuse natural human need love with divine love. They're not the same. When the two are confused, natural love apes divine love. It imitates divine love, and it becomes an idol. Let me draw from Lewis here in his book, The Four Loves. He says, we have this quotation for you. This takes a little bit of thought, I realize, but let's think through this. Every human love, at its height, has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. Any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. That phrase hits us between the eyes. I hope to demonstrate that. It certainly does for me. Now it must be noticed, he goes on, that the natural loves make this blasphemous claim not when they are in their worst, but when they are in their best natural condition. And that should scare us. Now that may not all make sense at this point, but I'd like to unpack it today and perhaps next week so that it will. We must be careful then to distinguish between the love God puts in our hearts at regeneration, the kind of love we are wholly incapable of evidencing without his aid, and the need love which comes naturally to us as human beings. I'm not sure I'm making this clear. Let me try this one more time. We can say that we receive this love from God and that that love from God as he demonstrates it is all that there is for us. And I'm saying I think it's that love transforming lesser human loves which are receiving loves that is the issue. All right? Hopefully this will make sense. But let's go secondly to our major heading here. Secondly, identifying the human loves. Let's identify these human loves, these what we're calling lesser loves or need loves. The Greek language provides us here with four words for love. And as we go back to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 and we consider this text, I think it's probably familiar to many of you. If not, then please understand that the Greek word that's used here for love in this context is the Greek word agape. It is a unique kind of love. It's the kind of love of Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for his enemies, does not bring into any consideration the cost to himself, does not consider the desert of the people for whom he's dying. He gives his all and lays out his all for the people that are there for whom he is dying. That is agape love, and that's the kind of love of God that is put in our hearts as the redeemed and which we are to demonstrate toward God and toward others. But the Greek language also supplies us with other words for love. Receiving type loves, smaller types loves, natural type loves. 
And they are helpful for us to understand, not as an academic exercise merely, but because these loves become idolatrous and they displace real, genuine love. And so let's look at them. There is, first of all, agape, the love of God, epitomized in Christ on the cross. There is, secondly, storge, the love of familiarity. There is philia, the love of friendship. And there is eros, which we might call romantic type of love. We have to be very cautious here as we lay out these human loves, these three loves, that we not tear them apart and categorize them so carefully that they never cross paths. In fact, as Lewis would put it, we murder to dissect. In other words, he means to put them in isolated categories is to ruin the whole concept. They flow into each other in various ways in various relationships. So don't think of them as careful categories. I started to do this as I was thinking through this, trying to think of illustrations that fit just one category. It's pretty tough. In each of these loves, there's something of the other. But we've picked them out And we put them on the table simply to analyze them. They're meant to go together. They're part of our human capacity. But let's pick them out so that we can isolate them. Putting them, in a sense, under the microscope. We look first of all today and lastly today. But we'll look only at storge. This is the love of familiarity. The meaning of the word, perhaps the best translation, is love of natural affection. The word is particularly useful to describe the love that is unique to families and especially of parents for their children. But in a broader sense, this is the love of familiarity in whatever the context. There may be storge-type love at your workplace. There may be absolute animosity and hatred at your workplace too, I realize, but in some people's work environment, there is storge love. It's a love of familiarity. You kind of know each other and you get along with each other. We'll get to that in a moment. It might be found on a ball team, in a neighborhood, at school. In some context, there's this love of familiarity. Before I define it further, let's look at two occasions in which it occurs in the New Testament. These will suffice. Romans chapter 1 and verse 31. Romans chapter 1 and verse 31. Is it not interesting we come back to Romans 1 today? Last week we looked at Paul's characterization of the downward course of human depravity. It is in this discussion that we find an interesting reference to storge love. In the midst of this loveless, godless world that deteriorates into these vices, we read among these vices such as gossip and slander and boastful and those who invent evil and disobey parents and are senseless and faithless, we come at verse 31 to this word. Notice in verse 31 the word heartless. Heartless. I'm really not sure where that translation came from, but let me say that's the word storge, or what the King James calls without natural affection. It is the word storge with an ah on the front. Not affectionate. Not given to familiar love. What is the point in this context? Sin will take human beings to a state of depravity where even natural human affections are abandoned. And it is not difficult for us to consider this when we look at the child neglect of our day. And in my thinking, and I think in the thinking of, of our church, certainly in this abortion matter, 
of how natural affection is turned on its head and is lost. It's a sign of depravity. The reference here proves then that agape is not to wholly replace storge. There's nothing wrong with storge. As a matter of fact, there's something desperately wrong when it's missing. When parents don't have a simple sense of care for their children, it's a sign of depravity, and it's a sign we see all around us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, very similar reference. In fact, again, it is in the negative here. That is, it is something that's missing in this context. And it's a sign of the depths of depravity to which human beings can fall. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 1, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, disobedient, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. And you notice the word there, without love. This is our word in Greek, storge. This is without natural affection. Now, the English doesn't provide that for us. We just have one word for all of these four words. If you were reading the Greek text, it would be ah on storge, not loving, not having natural affection. And that is again a sign of depravity. So just as in the Romans context, so here it is a sign of downward spiraling humanity when people do not even display the love of familiarity. Now hear, hear me. The Bible does not argue here, storge love is gone, it's meaningless, it's hopeless, it's sinful, replace it with agape love. That's not the way the Bible speaks. Agape love should fuel and should change and transform storge love, but storge love is good. As a matter of fact, if your neighbors have it, rejoice and thank God, even if they hate God. If they have this natural affection, praise God for His common grace. Thank Him for it. This is a good love that unbelievers can have. Now let's, look, let's talk about it for a minute. Let's describe it. What does this look like? Probably the most ideal image of storge love is what? It is probably a mother nursing her child. In that one image, we have probably the epitome of storge love. Storge is certainly a giving love in many respects, but it is also a need love. Mother gives milk and natural affection for her baby, but mother also very much needs the baby to relieve her of that milk. There's a taking there as well. And take that baby away from that mother in death and it will become painfully obvious to all that that mother did not only give love to her baby but also receive love from her baby in this storge relationship. Storge love is the kind of love that allows families to overlook one another's faults when the very same weaknesses would cause great irritation if found in an outsider. This is how you can eat with young children that are yours. And if any other young children act the same way, you would absolutely lose it. This is a way you could eat Thanksgiving dinner with some of the people you probably just ate Thanksgiving dinner with, some of you, and you can handle it. You just overlook them. They're, they're familiar. They just fit into the family. This is the love that allows families to say honest things to one another without offense, like you tell, somebody, you tell your family member without even thinking it, you got something hanging out of your nose there. Would you get that out? You would never say that to someone that you, that you were just meeting and highly respected. You, know, you just kind of ignore it. You don't say a thing about it. That shirt 
looks terrible on you. You need to bury that thing. It's a family. You can handle that, hopefully. But it, it's just the kinds of things you say. You say honest things. To in, you, you interrupt Grandpa's story as he starts telling it for the 44th time in the same event. You just say, we heard that already. Or you endure it one more time with a little smile, and somehow you don't get irritated by it. That's family love. This is the love that allows us to say hi and goodbye by giving dull kisses and meaningless hugs without embarrassment and for no particular reason. We're just family. It allows us to get together with people with whom you have nothing in common. And if you met them outside the context of family, you would have nothing to do with them. Yet there you are, sitting at the table, across from them, and you think very little of it. Without Storge, these same people would drive you crazy, but here you are. Or as Robert Frost put it, home is the place where they have to take you in. That's Storge love. This necessity reaches far beyond families, as I've mentioned. It reaches in among workmates in certain environments, among neighbors, among members of a club, an athletic team, or the orchestra. They spend time together. They get to know one another. They begin to take each other for granted. They just are familiar with each other. And there's a certain type of kindness and camaraderie and workability with each other that just naturally develops. It's storge love. Storge love gives wide berth for weaknesses and mistakes. It overlooks faults. It takes the beloved almost for granted, rarely gets real excited about the beloved or spends a lot of time talking about them. I, I've heard so much about your kids in this church. I've heard so much. You've heard so much about my kids in this church. I haven't heard anybody hardly ever talking about their cousin from Idaho. We don't, we don't come and talk about cousins and even grandparents. I mean, once in a while, I might get into the conversation if it's fit, but we don't go around bragging about our families and bragging about people that we take for granted, that we're just familiar with. I don't mean taking for granted in a wrong way. I just mean we just, we just assume them. We assume their presence and they assume us. Now, do you begin to see, we're not going there today, but do you begin to see the difference with a friendship type of love? That's not going to work in friendship type of love to just assume one another. It's a different kind of love. We'll get there later, Lord willing. But this storge love binds people together across racial, occupational, educational, territorial, and age boundaries. These are people you actually offend by being polite and rigid. Now, there's a great weakness in this kind of love. It's not a complete love. It's a natural love, and it can be very easily corrupted. Storge love is not the same quality as divine love, and it has to be sanctified by agape love. Storge is easily corrupted. Now, you think through this, and you begin to see that this is true. Storge can become contemptuous. It can very easily turn to hatred. All the stuff you've just always put up with all of a sudden does begin to irritate you. Storge can become very unkind, such as when children criticize their parents disrespectfully or when parents criticize their children with incivility. There are some adult children who come home and their parents rip them to shreds. Hey, we're family. How we talk to family. But it can very quickly, this familiarity, turn into unkindness and incivility. 
It can lead to an honesty that becomes mean-spirited and hurtful. Storge can degenerate into jealousy, where we have sibling rivalry that develops within the family familiarity. When a new person enters the fraternity, this can lead to great jealousy. A new team member can disrupt the chemistry of the team. A boyfriend or girlfriend brought to Thanksgiving may turn younger siblings jealous and not a few older siblings as well. This corruption can be shown in the mother who says, if you really loved me, you would join me against your father. Right, come on, we've been familiar all these years, we've known each other all these years, we're family, now if you're on my side, then you're against him. It begins to cave in on itself. Storge can easily degenerate into bitterness. This commonly happens when love is not returned. These are the parents whose children never come home and they say, what in the world? I've given all of my life to this kid. I've done everything that I could for them. And they're gone. They don't ever come back. They never say hello. They care nothing about me. It's offended. It becomes bitter. That's not agape love. But that's storge love. It's the temptation that is inherent in this kind of weakened love. And sometimes the honesty can lead to true offense. Storge can become grasping and possessive. This is the mother who wants her children to need her, and she smothers them and rules their lives. Lewis writes of a supposedly fictional Mrs. Fidget. I'm guessing that's a fictional name. But uh, he labored, uh, she labors to be essential to her family. And so Lewis writes so well this. They did things for her to help her do things for them which they didn't want done. Storge love can fall into all forms of depravity if it is not held up and bolstered and infused with agape love. But it can get worse. That's in its worst state, but its absolutely worst state is when it is in its highest demonstration and it apes divine love. It imitates it. It becomes idolatrous. Let's think of Lewis's words again from that earlier quotation. Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake, let's put in there, for storge's sake, is thereby lawful and even meritorious. Now it must be noticed that the natural loves make this blasphemous claim not when they are at their worst, as we've been just describing, but when they are at their best natural condition. Let's apply this in two ways. First of all, to the church. What could be more noble than for us to love one another as a church with storge love? You know what? We do. Particularly the longer that we're here together and get to know each other, this storge love flows within our assembly. It, it has to. You don't really have any choice in the matter. You're human. There's a familiarity which develops. What could be more noble? The danger is our love may be purely storge love. We're comfortable here. We're familiar with one another. We're at home here. There has to be much more to it than that. And this is where we've got to stop the breaks and listen to this discussion of love and begin to really analyze, is our love for one another nothing more than a familiarity? 
If it is, we are not honoring God's command to love one another with divine love. The inevitable result in a church when it is purely storge love is first of all that people, and particularly new people, will be resisted. Be a resistance there. They've come into the guild. They've come into the fraternity. Oh no, we're challenged. There will be a cool reception toward visitors because they're not familiar. They're strange. Agape love never had that thought. I don't know this person. I better stand off. I'm not sure who they are and don't know why they're here. And That's not agape love speaking. That's storge. I'm not familiar with this person. What we need is for agape love to drive us to lay out our lives in sacrificial love for one another with no regard for what people deserve or what it costs us. In the end, storge love will destroy a church. The degeneration we have been describing will attack and will attach itself to us and drag us down. Familiarity will breed contempt. And jealousy and bitterness and grasping competitiveness will win the day. Listen to me, do you have any of those concepts toward anyone in your assembly? A contempt through familiarity, jealousy, bitterness, grasping competitiveness. It's the absence of agape love. And it is the fermenting and the uh, downward spiral of storge love. Let's apply it to the family. A few more moments. What could be more noble for parents to love their children, for families to love one another and enjoy being together? There's nothing evil about such love by any stretch of the imagination, but such storge love must be sanctified by agape love or it will decay. In the name of family love, parents permit children to dictate the family agenda without regard for God's will. In the name of family love, parents talk incessantly about their children and fawn over them when they ought to spend more time listening to the needs of others and offering words of encouragement and hope. In the name of family love, church services and ministry opportunities are routinely missed. In the name of family love, money is spent foolishly so that giving to the cause of Christ is stunted. In the name of family love, life becomes self-centered and small in the love for others and afterthought. In the name of family love, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mission of his people is entirely ignored. We're too busy with us. And at the end of it all, it would be pretty hard for families sometimes to prove that they love God more than they love themselves. Home is a wonderful place. It is not an end in itself. Let me say it as gently as Jesus ever put it. 
This is as gently as he put it. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. He put it more harshly. And we may return to that at a later date. But Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37 is as gently as he put it to us. And I would call you to take it to heart. Families. Or your family may be your job. Maybe your club. Maybe your team. Maybe your school. Wherever that familiarity is, let's take it to heart as we apply Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What does he mean? Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, family can get in the way of following Christ. Now, I'll be honest, the Greek word here is philos rather than storge, but the word storge is very seldom used in the New Testament. And again, understanding that they overlap tremendously, the point would obviously, we could take the word storge here too. He could, the, the text could say philos slash storge, it just chooses one word. But I don't think that, it, I think obviously it's very applicable because it refers to family relationships. Anyone who loves his father or mother or children Son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Agape love, divine love, must oversee our human loves. And we must, as Luke chapter 18 puts it, be willing to let go of our human loves for the cause of Christ. Now the cause of Christ, generally often very specifically calls us to lay down our life for our family. As would be clearly seen in Ephesians chapter 5, in the command to the husband to love his wife and to lay down his life for her. But that agape love at other times may call for other decisions. The family is not supreme. God is supreme. And in the heart of any disciple who is worthy of Christ, that confusion is never made. The family is not heaven. The family is not God. God is God. And eternity awaits. And so the question that is left for us is, do you love God with all your heart? Does that love permeate and direct your familiar loves of family, of church, of neighborhood, of workplace, of school, of team, or whatever the context? I'm beginning to see, as we work our way through this text, that God, through love, puts his finger really hard upon our heart. And he gets us to look him in the eye. And he says to us what he said to Peter. Do you really love me? We'll continue by God's grace to keep searching out that question and letting him work in our lives as we consider other forms of love and other forms of idolatry that fall short of this divine love. Let's bow now for prayer as we ask the Lord to continue his work through the Spirit in transforming us.
Lord, as we consider Jesus Christ on the cross, and we think of your love, we are mindful, Father, that in that work, there is a specific display of storge on the altar. Storge sacrificed and killed for agape. God, as you call us to do the same, when and where, I pray that we would respond. Our sacrifices may be very minimal, minor, unnoticeable to many. But God, help us to remember how vital they really are. And I pray that we, like Abraham of old, and like you, our Father, that we would be willing to lay down that which is most precious to us in the storge realm on an altar and sacrifice it to you should you call us to do so. And I pray that in the nitty-gritty of life that we demonstrate that that desire is truly in our hearts as we make decisions which magnify your name and exalt your kingdom and keep in line familiar love, making it subservient to agape. God, I need that. And I think we as a church need this that we might be transformed as an assembly and that we might be transformed as families. Help us, God, to knock down and grind up the idol of storge, if there is such in our heart, and to love one another within family context and familiar context in such a way that is driven by agape love. This is my cry for your people, for my own heart, and as we ask this of ourselves, we want to just stop and thank you again, Father, for the love that you've had, us, had for us in Christ, have shown to us in Christ, and have for us. And I pray, God, that it would draw out of us a greater love, a love that would supersede family love, a love that would drive us, in fact, to be the greatest parents and children and teammates and workmates that we could possibly be. Guide us to this end, we ask. May we love you with all of our heart. In Christ's name, amen.